if you're going to buy a television, maybe a, a new washing machine, the normal thing that you would probably do is check the guarantee. Perhaps you read the small print, maybe you check the conditions, but generally, generally what you find, it's normally full of loopholes and get-out clauses. But as we read God's word today, I want you to discover that when God guarantees his promises, he gives as much as he could possibly give. Let's read what God's word has said. You can stand with me. We want to honor the word of God. Just if you stand together, let's read together. This is Genesis chapter 15. Can I thank Chris? as well for the, uh, the use of uh, some extra translations there. It says this, we're in verse 7. Then the Lord told him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land as your possession. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I, am, I will actually possess it? The Lord told him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abram presented all these to him and killed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle and led the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. Some swooped down to eat the carcasses but Abram chased them away as the sun was going down Abram fell into a deep sleep and a terrifying darkness came over him then the Lord said to Abram you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years but I will punish the nation that enslaves them, and in the end they will, they will come away with great wealth. As for you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land, for the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. After the sun set, after the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses so the lord made a covenant with abram that day and said i have given this land to your descendants all the way from the borders of egypt to the great euphrates river you can have a seat father we thank you for your word and we pray, Lord, as we explore this little section of scripture, Lord, that you would speak to us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to respond to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, at first reading of this passage, let's be honest, it's just plain weird. Amen. Butcher animals, bad dreams, floating pot and, and torch. What on earth is going on? These verses 
come immediately after a verse that in probably many ways is the turning point of biblical theology. It says in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. In fact, it's the same verse that Paul referred to in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, and in verse 22. In order to show that Abraham, um, become Abraham will, will, be ju- will be justified by faith, not works. And although this isn't the moment of Abram's conversion, after all, he already is God's faithful servant. He's chosen by grace. But it is significant because we see here what faith is is a belief in God through his word. Abram now fully trusts in God who has spoken, and so he responds to him as he should. In other words, a right relationship exists between God and Abram. A righteousness that is based on grace and faith. Now, Christian faith is not about believing the impossible, but about believing God. It's not persuading yourself about future events, but about trusting in a person. And this, of course, is a gift from God. That well-known verse, I'm sure you all know it, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. It just sums it up beautifully. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. And and you and I need to ask God to give us a deeper trust in him and in his word. You see, all Abram did was trust God. And God declared this ungodly, this pagan man, to be right. Coming from earth to Chaldees, he started out as an ungodly, as a non-Jew. And that's where God met him, but it wasn't where God left him. He, by faith, entered into a covenant relationship with God. However, this was very much a journey of faith for Abram. Because despite the declaration of verse 6, by verse 7, Abram is already needing further reassurance. This time it's about the land. And it's worth noting that the question that he asks in verse 8 parallels almost exactly with the question he previously asked in verse 2 that was looked at last week. So, So what follows in the rest of this chapter is, yes, a rather bizarre, rather gory yet solemn covenant ceremony but when it's understood in the context of verse 6 and particularly in the context of faith it it reaffirms that Abram's righteousness in relation to God is established by trusting in his word alone not by relying on the guarantees given by some ceremony however important that ceremony may be so that this this covenant between God and Abram is fundamentally a relationship of promise. And the word covenant appears many times in scriptures as part of God's redemption plan. 
And a covenant is simply an agreement. It involves obligation from, from the parties involved. It's a binding promise, a contract, if you like. In this case, this promise was formalized in the practice of cutting animals in half. Now, not something we're used to. I give you that. But in fact, what we see in the symbolism of bisected animals is God literally cutting a deal. The verb used to describe making a covenant is the same as to cut. And the people making the covenant would sacrifice several animals. They would divide the bodies. They'd place the halves at, on, sort of at opposite each other on the ground. And then the parties, the people, would walk through between the divided animals. And when they did, what they were really saying is this. May what's happened to these animals also happen to me if I fail to keep my side of the relationship. You can read more about it in Jeremiah 34, verses 8 to 22, if you want some homework. But there's something, there's something very, something significantly different between what normally happens and then what Abram experiences here. Abram's told to assemble the sacrificial animals, verse 9, to cut all except the two birds in two, and then to arrange the half, the halves with spaces between them, verse 10. Up to this point, nothing, nothing's different. That's normally what would happen. But then, then he spends the rest of the day fighting off birds of prey that is attracted to the flesh and to the blood. And then when dusk comes, Abram goes to sleep. And it's while he is sleeping that God speaks to Abram, verse 12. In fact, it says, it's, it's out of the horror of great darkness, that's, that's, that's how it's described, that, that Abram hears the terms of God's covenant. Now, was the horror that's talked about here, was it because a sinful man was in the presence of a supremely holy God? Or was it a prophetic picture of the slavery that Abram's descendants were going to experience? Or maybe even was it prophetic imagery of the horror of the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus' death on the cross? Perhaps it's all three, I actually don't know. Whatever the significance, it was from this place that Abram discovers God's plan for the nation, for himself, and for the land. And he hears both good news and bad news. Now, always best thing with bad news first. So here it goes. It's, it, see, it's going to be a long time. It's going to be some time before Abram's descendants will actually possess the land. The, the events and the timing of what will happen to Abram's descendants was and is always in in the hands of God. First of all, God tells Abram about the painful future awaiting his descendants. Only after 400 years of mistreatment in another land, we know, of course, it turns out to be Egypt, will they even begin to take possession of the land where Abram now sits. But what is interesting is why did God wait so long to deliver his people and give them their promised land? Well, 
they simply had to wait until the time when the existing inhabitants truly deserved to be removed because of their sin, verse 16. In fact, even in this, we see the hand and mercy and the character of God. A God who was long-suffering with the nation of Canaan. He was slow to judgment so that they may have time to repent and turn to him. So even though it may seem unfair to, for God to hand over land when others are, are already living there, verse 16 reminds us that the inhabitants of this land were anything but innocent. So when God gave the promised land to his people after this 400-year gap, it was not just an act of judgment against the Amorites whose sin had reached its full measure. It was also an act of prophetic fulfillment and proof that God always keeps his promises. Now that leads us nicely into the good news. Because yes, there was deliverance. There was justice. It would eventually come, and in doing so, God fulfills the terms of his covenant that he promised here to Abraham. You see, in this covenant, when, when someone walks between the halves of the animals, it invokes either blessing for obedience to what is being promised or curse for disobedience. Now, as I've already said, Abraham's experience is very different from what normally happens in this ceremony. Normally, normally what happens is that both parties walk through the middle of the animals. In this case, it is only God who goes between them. Abram, he's still snoring. He's still fast asleep. And God takes on himself the responsibility for all of the consequences of covenant breaking. And he does it alone. God alone makes this unconditional promise to his people. And, and the symbol of God's presence that moves between these animals are the smoking fire pot and this blazing torch. You know, I think it's just more than coincidence that one day these symbols will be very, very familiar to Abram's descendants. In Exodus chapter 13, verse 21 and 22, we read about the cloud and the fire. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or by night. Neither the cloud of fire by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. And this, this is God's visible representation before his people. But it was to Abram, the father of the nation of Israel, that God first of all reveals himself in this way. Yet it seems, it seems absolutely astonishing when we realize what God is actually saying here. Yes, he is declaring, I am with you, both to Abram, but also to his descendants. And of course, we are included in that promise, but there's something else within his promise. God is saying that 
that he himself will be destroyed and cursed if he breaks the covenant. Now, this is a very odd thing for an almighty, a holy, a sinless God to say. And yet, it gives us such hope and such certainty because he will never break. He'll never break it. In fact, the only ones who will break the covenant are God's people. That's you and me. Of course, now anybody who knows their Bibles anyway well at all will immediately be joining the dots because in the end, God in Christ will curse himself. Not because he breaks the relationship, but because we do. He will be cursed. He will be broken on our behalf. So although God's commitment to his people will finally be fulfilled at the cross, it's here in the book of Genesis that we see God's absolute and his total commitment to us. We see his unfailing love and, and he agrees to bear the consequence of our sin. He takes the curse. This is God's astonishing commitment to his people. And this passage in Genesis tells us the purpose of redemption. In redemption, there is faith in Jesus Christ. We find a home, we find an inheritance, and we find a family, just as Abram did. You see, justification by faith is it's not just a New Testament idea, but it's linked into God's promise to Abram and to his descendants. And the reason, the reason is the power of the cross of Jesus Christ stands outside of time. So the result of Jesus' death on the cross meant that the righteousness of Jesus Christ was put not just on Abram's account, which of course it was, but also on yours and also on mine. Because as believers, we are part of the same covenant family and, and there is only one way in, by faith. It's by faith alone. In other words, knowing God has never been about obeying laws. It was established by faith alone. It's true for Abram. And listen, it's true for you this morning as well. And you, you need to know that God never, he never forgets, he never forsakes his people. Not only because of his promises, but also because of his character. Listen, God is love. And where there is love, there is faithfulness. And his faithfulness means that he can never change. In fact, he never needs to change. His perfection means that he is holy and he is absolutely dependable. Listen. You can depend on God in each and every situation, no matter how you feel, because God remembers you. And when God guarantees his promises, he gives as much as he could possibly give. He gave his life for you. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, we, we read the reality of this covenant with God. It says, but... Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. 
when he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for a wrongdoing, for it is written in the scriptures, curses anyone who is hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abram so that we who believe might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. And in these, in these verses, Paul asks the question, do you want the blessing of Abraham? Do you? The answer is yes, by the way, if you, to help you along. <laughs> and Paul says, look, it, it, comes, it comes through Jesus Christ. You don't need anything else. Do, but we do need to understand that this blessing, this gift, this, this curse, this curse removal, this redemption came at a massive cost. In Galatians chapter 3.13, Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy 21.23, when he said that anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. Now, the Jews did not crucify criminals. They stoned them to death. But in cases of shameful violations of the law, the, the body was hung on a, on a tree for everybody to see. This was the, just the greatest humiliation. The Roman punishment of crucifixion differed in so many ways from the Jewish custom um, of exposing the dead bodies of criminals on a stake, but the message is still the same. Death by hanging was still a very powerful outward sign that the person had broken the law and it was both a punishment and also a curse. Of course, when Paul refers to the pole, he's talking about the cross where Jesus died. But, but it wasn't just the manner of his death that meant that he was cursed. When Jesus was nailed to the cross alive and then left to die, there was also this deeper, richer meaning at a whole other level. Because here in this, we see the fulfillment of numerous Old Testament prophecies not least the passage we're looking at this morning. So this is not only a death of shame to both Jew and Gentile alike. It symbolizes the fact that the one who hung there was willingly enduring the curse for us. By dying on the cross, Jesus Christ alone bore the curse for you. And, and Jesus and God upheld the covenant promise that he had made with Abraham so that the believer is now no longer under this awful curse. Instead, the blessing of God, justification by faith, the gift of his spirit is yours through faith in Jesus Christ. And what is really significant here, particularly in light of the covenant promise and ceremony that God made with Abraham, is that Jesus did not simply take your curse he became a curse for you please know jesus did not sin he is not a sinner he never sinned but on the cross he was treated legally as if he was a sinner he became sin and because jesus became the sinner for you then by faith you have become perfect and flawless as he is. 
Let me just read you some other verses to appreciate this. First Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. First Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sin the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. He is put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. And listen, the great achievement and the great promise of Jesus is that whoever you are, irrespective of your background, your nationality, your social standing, you can know the blessing of God and the filling of the Holy Spirit all through Jesus Christ. This is our blessings, the blessing that's yours in Jesus. Faith in Jesus will do what moral living never do in christ we find salvation and we find peace with god and the word that's often used here to describe this and i've mentioned a few times is redeemed it's probably worth explaining it redeemed means to purchase a slave for the purpose of setting them free now of course back in Bible times, most people who bought slaves never thought of setting them free. And in many ways, it was their right to keep them. But that is not what Jesus did. By shedding his blood on the cross, he purchased you so that you might be set free. And salvation is being set free from the curse of sin and from the bondage of the law into the freedom of God's grace through Jesus Christ. I know many of you can testify to that this morning of the amazing grace of God within your life, but you know, there's something very, I think, special and poignant about the words of John Newton, that slave trader who wrote that hymn, Amazing Grace. I'm sure you all know, I'm not gonna sing it, but here's the first verse, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. But now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. It's not only God's amazing grace could and would take a rude, profaned, slave-trading sailor and transform them into a child of God. Listen, your story and your journey will certainly be different to that. Not many slave traders, I'm guessing, in the room this morning. But, but you must never cease to stand in awe of God's work within your life. And I, I, I want you to understand this morning, I hope you're getting this, God can be trusted. He can. By faith in Christ, you are a member of the family of God. And, and, and God says to you today, Live your life knowing that you are my son, you are my daughter. You don't need to do anything. You just need to trust me. And the matter's already settled. Your identity as a child of God is, is secure. It is irreversible. Your inheritance is secure in him. See, when, when God alone passed between those sacrificed animals... He made an unconditional promise to his people. And listen, he understood what lay ahead. He knew that there was no one else except for Jesus who could walk the way of the cross, who could face the curse. He knew he would have to do it alone. 
And this, this is how absolute and how unmoving are the guarantees and the promises of God. Jesus gave his life out of love for you and for me. For he is God who loves his people from everlasting to everlasting. Which means that there is nothing that you or I have done or could do to affect or alter God's eternal love. We are saved and we are called not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and his own grace, which is given us in Christ Jesus before the age began, 2 Timothy 1.9. It's so important that you understand this. God loves you when you were loveless. You did not influence his love, not even for a moment. A.W. Pink asked the question, what was there in me to attract the heart of God? He says, absolutely nothing. But to the contrary, there was everything to repel him, everything calculated to make him lose me, sinful, depraved, a mass of corruption with no good thing in me, but God loves me. God loves you because it seemed good in his sight. He decided to love you first. Without Jesus Christ, we would never fully have known what God is like. But it is his unconditional promise that is proof of how much he loves you. And it is the death of Jesus Christ that confirms how much he can be trusted. Listen, the one simple yet tremendous fact that should never be far from our minds and from our hearts is the cost of the gospel, the covenant that God alone cut between himself and his people. This is the wonder of the gospel. It's a miracle of grace through the finished work of Jesus Christ and through the gift of his Holy Spirit, you have an irrefutable guarantee, certain and secure. He is the proof that you are a child of God in covenant relationship with a promise-keeping God. So, you must walk the way of faith. And take God at his word and trust in his love. Because there is no other gospel and there is no greater hope than this. Let's stand together. Lord, what can we say? How do we, re we respond in the light of your covenant promises, in the light of your grace? Lord, the only right response is to say, Lord Jesus, I love you. 
Thank you for what you've done in my life. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for redeeming me. Thank you for calling me. And Lord, I pray as your Holy Spirit just takes your word made and planted deep within our hearts, may the truth of the certainty and the security that is ours through faith in Christ really hit home. Lord, where there are doubts, we pray, Holy Spirit, come and just remove those now in Jesus' name. For those, Lord, that are questioning and just in some level of uncertainty about where they stand before you, Lord God, may they know just the peace of God in this moment. May they trust you completely. And I'm conscious here, though many of you already know Jesus, there's, there is the possibility that, that, that some of you have never made that, that step of faith. And that's, that's all it is, a step of faith. Jesus done the work. He died for you. And for some, maybe you need just to either come to him and say, Jesus, I trust you. Forgive, forgive me for my sinfulness. And fill me with your grace. Fill me with your love right now. Listen, you can pray that. It's a simple prayer. Ask him to come into your life. Receive him and live for him. If you want to talk to me or one of the other folks, do catch us afterwards. We'd love to pray with you and let me just explain things a little more. But as we finish, I just want to pray. Father, just fill us afresh with your spirit. Come and meet us, Lord, for the week that lies ahead. Father, very conscious that there are many situations, many difficulties that perhaps some of us are having to deal with. Lord, we pray for those that are facing sickness this morning. Lord, we, we lift the banks to you. Pray over Matt, Lord, Father, for your healing hand, for your provision, for that family, Lord God. Father, be their help and be their strength and be their peace. Jesus name but for others that that are just facing difficult decisions this week Lord Holy Spirit come and just bring wisdom and bring direction but in all of this Lord God may we do it in the light of your promises and may we live faithfully before you strengthened by your spirit in Jesus name Amen Amen.